Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for being here today as we worship God together. If you're new, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at First Free Church, and uh, I'd love to get to know you. If you are new here, come up and say hi after the service. We've been going through a series on the book of Acts, and we're going to continue that in a little bit, but right now we're going to pause and focus on Christmas. And, and we're going to try to look at Christmas from a little bit of a different perspective, and we'll do that over the next few weeks, and then we'll go back to our study on the book of Acts after that. So that's the plan for this month. It's going to be called the Impact of Christmas. Before we do that, I want to let you know that this week I'm going to be sending out an email to Senior Pastor Updates with some information about our plans for student ministries. Some of you know we've had some staffing changes there, so if you're not already subscribed, go to efree.org slash updates, and you can sign up for Senior Pastor Updates, and we'll be sending out some information this week to our leaders, to our students, to our parents, and as well to everybody that's signed up on that email list to give you more information and give you some next steps. Now, as we start talking about Christmas and dive into the Christmas season, how many of you have already decorated for Christmas? You're already there? Okay. How many of you are waiting to decorate? You'll still will decorate at some point this year. There's a handful of you willing to admit that. How many of you are just bah humbug? I'm not decorating. I'm not going to do it. Anybody? A couple of people out there? Good for you. You know what? Stand your, stand your ground. That's all right. There's nothing sacred about Christmas decorations. We like to decorate our, around our house for Christmas, but we have a cutoff of Thanksgiving. That's the earliest. The day after Thanksgiving is the earliest we are usually willing to put up Christmas decorations. No earlier than that because that would take away from Thanksgiving, except, except this year we broke our long-standing tradition. Jenny and I have been married for almost 15 years now, and we have maintained this tradition our entire lives, but we broke it this year because we looked at the weather report, and we saw that there were going to be a couple warm days right before Thanksgiving. We went, all right, let's go ahead and get the lights up outside before we hit into the cold, and I'm so glad that we did. It was really chilly this morning. I'm sure you have lots of fun things you do for Christmas, different family traditions and things like that. Why don't you just take a moment, tell the person next to you, what are you looking forward to the most? this Christmas. Well, there's obviously a lot to look forward to. And Christmas is a wonderful time of the year. We enjoy celebrating with food and lots of family get-togethers and, of course, the presents, which is all the kids care about, and lots of decorations and the lights, and you get to drive around and see all the cool lights, and all of that stuff is wonderful and it's fun, but in this series, we want to call your attention to something a little bit different, and let me just kick things off with a little bit of a story. Many years ago, when I was back in a different state, I was driving down a road I had traveled down many times before. It's a road with lots of shops and stores and restaurants and things, lots of local places that you can go to, a really wonderful place you could get anything you wanted to. And I was there to buy something. I don't remember what it was, but I pulled out of the parking lot of a, a store I had been to many times, a road I traveled on basically every day, and, and it was like a curb jumped out in front of the car, and I just ran right over it. And I don't know how it happened. It was like waiting in the bushes. And as I was driving through this curb, just like leapt out into the road. And I ran right over it with my truck. And I thought, huh, how did I not see that? That was really strange. I come this way all the time. And I just like right over this thing. The next day, I'm at church, different church, 
big long hallways, three big buildings and long hallways that connect these buildings. And I'm entering one end of a hallway. And at the other end, I see another person entering the other direction. So they're coming toward me, which means we're going to have to acknowledge each other, right? That's the rule. And I figure since I'm a pastor, I should probably greet them. And I don't know who they are. As they get closer, about 15 feet away, I say, hey, I'm Adam. How you doing? And as they get about 10 feet away, I recognize them as a close friend of mine. (laughs) Very awkward. That happened several times over the next few weeks. And I started to think, what is going on? Am I, there's an actual condition called face blindness. Do I have face blindness? Like, what is, what is the deal here? I cannot recognize who people are. And I thought, is it my memory? Like, I can't tell until I'm like right up next to them. And then all of a sudden I can realize who this person is. Like, why does it take me that long to figure out who they are? That's what I thought it was. I thought it was taking my brain longer to be able to understand who that person was until I was watching something on TV and a ticker came across and I had to get up to about three feet away from the TV to read what that was. And then I had a thought, maybe it's not my memory. Maybe it's not my brain. Maybe it's my eyes and I need to go get my eyes checked out. So I go to the eye doctor and they put those things in front of you, you know, with the little lenses that pop into place. And, and all of a sudden they hit the right combination and I could see clearly for the first time in a couple of months. I went, wow, that's why I've been having a hard time driving. Like this makes so much more sense. When you aren't looking at things through the right lens, you can make some really poor decisions. And maybe they're just awkward decisions and uncomfortable, or they can be really dangerous. But you've got to look at things in the right lens. And you know what happens now? Every single year I go back for another checkup. And I just had mine a couple weeks ago. And every single year I go back in and they retest my eyes. And every year, at least for me, they find out that it's a little bit off. And so things that once were clear have now become a little blurrier and I have to get a new prescription to adjust to match where I'm at today. And you know, the Christian life can be like that sometimes where things we once saw very clearly become blurry over time as we start to look through a lens that I think can actually be kind of a dangerous lens for us to look through, but it just sort of happens gradually over time. It builds up over our spiritual eyes. And that is a lens that I would call the lens of common, the lens of common. When things that once had spiritual significance to us and were fresh and were interesting and we cared about and they energized us, we had a passion for, and we realized how important they were over time, we can see those things through the lens of common and we start to disregard how meaningful and special they are. This is exactly why um, the Christian faith often has traditions to try to remind us of things over the centuries. We've come up with all sorts of different traditions and many of those traditions, most of them are not actually biblical or necessarily good or bad, but they're there for a reason. They're there to remind us. They're there to be that annual checkup. That's why things like liturgical calendars exist and Advent season things and all sorts of things that happen in different denominations that they do as reminders. There's there's only one main one that Jesus implemented, and that is the Lord's Supper, which we will take today together. And what is that? That's a tradition that Jesus implemented because he knows we have a tendency over time to forget, to forget the things that really matter. And he said, do this in what? Remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. Why, Why does he say that? Do this so you won't forget. So you won't forget how important this is, how significant this is. And here's the thing. Over time, we naturally forget the significance and the impact of Christmas. That's what this series is all about. A couple hundred years after Jesus, they started to celebrate what they thought was the birthday of Jesus with a special mass for Christ. So it's Christ mass, Christmas. That's where it comes from. It's this day of celebration. And today it's all about 
spend, 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 give, 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 get, get, get. It's all about the lights and the decorations and the food and the parties and all these things that we do, which are wonderful in many cases, but they're not the real reason for Christmas. And so we want to look at Christmas through a few different lenses this season. And today we're going to look at Christmas and the cross. Christmas through the lens of the cross. How would you think about Christmas differently if you're looking at it through that lens and seeing it clearly through the lens of the cross? We'll be in a few different passages of scripture today. I encourage you to open your own Bible and follow along with us. We will put the verses on the screen. And so that's there for you. But also, if you have your Bible open, you can kind of look at the verses before, look at the verses after, be double checking to make sure I'm, I'm telling you what's actually in the Bible, you know, keep me honest and all that. So I encourage you to use your own Bible for this. And before we do, let's just ask God for wisdom as we dive into his word together. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for what it teaches us and how it tells us how to live, tells us more about you. God, I pray that today you would help us to learn a little something about you and the sacrifice that you made for us, what we've been singing about today, Lord, what we praise you for, what we're about to celebrate with the Lord's Supper. And I pray that you'd help us to see Christmas in a, a fresh light, maybe one that we have in the past, but it's so easy to forget over time. So help us to see things clearly today. In your name we pray, amen. I wanna start things off in Mark chapter 10. So turn to your Bibles in Mark chapter 10, although admittedly, we're only going to look at one verse in Mark 10. So, but if you want to go ahead and turn there, let me give you the context. Jesus is with his disciples and James and John go off kind of alone with him and they make a play on some special places of privilege. See, their idea is Jesus is going to have a kingdom at one point. When he has a kingdom, he's going to have a throne, got to have a throne for a kingdom. And that throne usually has some seats next to it. Those seats are positions of high status, high privilege, high honor, high importance. And James and John are thinking, hey, we're in on the ground floor of this thing. Maybe we can go ahead and get some of those special seats of honor. So they go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, in your kingdom, when you have your glorious throne, we would like for the two of us to one sit on your right and one sit on your left. This is in Mark chapter 10. And Jesus gives them this gentle rebuke and he actually deflects and says, it's really not for me to decide who's going to sit there, but for the father in heaven. But then the disciples find out about James and John's request and they get a little upset about this. So they start arguing amongst themselves about, you know, why James and John would do this. And Jesus, knowing this, calls them all over and he delivers a message to them that is so incredibly significant about why he's really there. Why did Jesus come into this earth to begin with? Here's what he says in Mark 10, verse 45. Even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, James and John and the disciples are arguing about who's going to have a position of prominence, who's going to have a special seat, a place where people will show up and they'll care for you and they'll bring food to you and they'll meet your needs and you can tell people what to do and people will be your subjects and they will serve you. And Jesus is saying, that's not the kind of kingdom I have in mind. I'm not here to be served. I'm here to serve other people and to offer my life as a ransom for other people. Man, that's the last thing you'd expect the king to do. The king's going to be protected behind the, the inner fortress in a place where no one can get to him. His throne is going to be the most guarded place in the kingdom. And yet Jesus says, no, my life's going to be offered as a ransom. Do you understand this? You, you hanging along with me? This isn't a safe place to be. 
My life is going to be a ransom for other people. We think of Christmas as this time when Jesus came as a little baby and we put a lot of nostalgia in that and, and we think of it as this wonderful, amazing thing. And yet Jesus is telling the disciples, the reason I came is to serve other people and to give up my life as a ransom. It looks back to a psalm, Psalm 49. The sons of Korah wrote this psalm and, and it, it speaks about ransom. In Psalm 49, verse one, it says, listen to this, all you people. Pay attention, everyone in the world, high and low, rich and poor. Listen, for my words are wise and my thoughts are filled with insight. I listen carefully to many proverbs and solve riddles with inspiration from a harp. Why should I fear when trouble comes, when enemies surround me? They trust in their wealth and boast of great riches, yet they cannot redeem for themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. Redemption does not come so easily for no one can ever pay enough to live forever and never see the grave. This is why Jesus had to come to be our ransom because we can't ransom ourselves. It's right there in the Old Testament. It's actually kind of amazing. A people who would come to believe that by doing all these different things, that's what makes you right with God. And yet right there in their holy scriptures, it says no one can ever pay enough to earn eternal life. No one can ever pay enough to God to live forever and never see the grave. This is something that only Jesus can provide. And so Jesus had to come as a ransom. And it's worth stopping for a minute to think about this, to think about the comparison between Jesus and our God and the perspective the world had on gods at the time. Now, we live in an environment today that is largely agnostic and atheistic. That's just kind of where we're at today. And a lot of people, they might say they believe in God, but they're not really sure. And, and, and around the world, though, today, there are lots of people that believe in a variety of different gods. And back in Jesus' day, it was very common for lots of people to have different gods that they believed in. It wasn't so much atheism and agnosticism that was prevalent. It was paganism. It was the belief in lots of different gods. And those gods did not exist in these people's minds to serve them. They existed for people to serve the gods. That's why they were there. The, the gods in the ancient context, in the ancient world, were not generous. They were not gracious. They were not giving. They were not merciful. They were not loving. They were selfish and greedy and ambitious. And they wanted what they could get from you. And in fact, if you wanted something from the gods, you couldn't just ask them for it. You had to give them something. And often you had to give them something that would hurt, like a human sacrifice. The idea that people had about the gods was that these are vengeful creatures to, to be manipulated and, and worshiped out of pure fear, not because they are in any way gracious or loving and generous. And yet Jesus says, no, no, no. God has come to serve. God has come to give up his life. God has come to be the sacrifice, to be the ransom for many people. It's such an interesting contrast there between what the rest of the world believed and what God was actually doing. Was the opposite of what people believed about the gods. He says, I've come to serve. And of course, we know that ultimately he would give up his life on the cross to die for us as a ransom for many. And so Christmas requires the cross. Christmas requires the cross. Without the cross, there could be no Christmas. Without the death of a savior, there's no reason to celebrate the coming of a savior. And so you have to have the cross to have Christmas. That's number one. Now let's look at Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two 
is a beautiful portion of scripture that many scholars believe was a song sung in the early churches. It's worded that way where you could see it being put to music and, and sang in, in their language. So in Philippians chapter two, starting in verse five, we have this written about Jesus. Paul starts off by saying, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Now, what we see here in this passage is the humility of Christ and Christmas and the cross both show us Christ's humility. Christmas and the cross both show us Christ's humility. He was equal to God, but he didn't cling to that equalness with God. He gave up his divine privileges to come to earth. And here's the thing. He came in one of the most lowly ways imaginable. How many of you here after you were born were immediately placed in a feeding trough for animals? Probably not too many of us. You know, Jesus wasn't born to a wealthy family, a family of power or prestige, a family with a lot of influence. He was born to a, a construction worker. He was born to a family that didn't have a lot of means, didn't have a lot of resources. They were, they were a loving family for sure. They were good people, but they weren't exactly well off. That's how he came into the world. One of the lowliest positions imaginable. And now think about his death. That's what Philippians draws us to. The criminal's death on the cross. He humbled himself in how he came and he humbled himself in how he died. He dies a criminal's death on the cross. What is the cross? The cross is the worst means of killing a person humanity had devised up till that point. It's excruciating and it's public. You may be wondering at some point in your life, why the cross? If Jesus had to die, why couldn't he die a nice death? on a bed, surrounded by the people that he loves. If he just needed to die, why die such a horrible death? And the answer is God chose to come into this world and experienced the lowest we had to offer, the worst we had to offer. He didn't come into a wealthy family and he didn't die a rich man's death. He died a criminal's death in the worst way possible. He has experienced the lowest of the lows. He has experienced as a person on this earth, a lower life, a more discouraging and depressing life than any of us ever have or ever will. That's what God wanted to endure for us. That's what God went through and experienced for us. In fact, the Bible says he's been tempted in every way as we are because he's experienced all the worst things this world has to offer as far as the experiences that you can go through. The most painful death imaginable in front of thousands of people. And that's the other thing. The death on the cross was very public. Most forms of dying don't happen on display. Back in those days, they didn't have TVs and television cameras to broadcast anything. The way of broadcasting any kind of big execution would be up on a big hill, on a cross for hours. For everyone walking by to see as they entered in and out of the city, thousands of people looking on them and seeing these three guys up there dying with a sign explaining what they did that was wrong. And so God chose to experience the worst we had to offer in a most public way so that when he came back to life, 
Hundreds of people, as Paul said, saw him risen from the dead, but they also watched him die. It wasn't like he was off in some back room where he slipped away quietly and then people reported about his death, but then he showed up later because then you could think, well, maybe they lied about his death. No, no, no. His death was the most public death you could possibly have at the time. This was the equivalent of being nationally broadcast. Everyone around saw him die. And when he came back and they saw the nail holes in his hands and they saw him alive, hundreds of people witnessed his resurrection and said, I saw him die. I saw him alive. And this is real. This is a miracle. He really is who he says he is. Jesus did, did that for you and for me. It shows his humility, both Christmas, how he was born, and the cross, how he died, shows the incredible humility of Christ. And of course, because of that, the text in Philippians says that God raised him up to a place of great honor and a position where he can be a savior for you and for me. And that leads us to our third point. Our third point is going to be in Luke chapter five. I'm actually not going to read it to you. I'm going to show it to you in a different way, but let me set it up first. Jesus has just called Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, to follow him and to be his disciple. And so Matthew hosts this party at his house, the home of a tax collector, not a place Jewish people wanted to be. Tax collectors, the, the Jewish people could not stand the tax collectors because they were Jews who betrayed their own people so that they could get money from them and give it to Rome. I mean, this was the worst of the worst. They were, they were hated. They were despised. The tax collectors were. And so Matthew is hosting this party at his home. He's got Jesus and other people there with him. And the Pharisees come by and they see Jesus there. And they think, how on earth can he be there eating with these people? And you're going to learn something about Jesus' mission here. Pay attention to what Jesus says. Let's watch this together. Does anyone want any grapes? Barnaby, you eat a lot. <laughs> Very observant, Matthew. Thank you. Simon. You know, Matthew, when you're not behind iron bars, you're quite handsome. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> what is going on? May I help you? We were just on a walk and we heard voices, and I thought it sounded like... But surely not. And yet it is you. Would you like to come in? We would never. Never be caught dead in a... In a what? In a tax collector's house? Not only that, but we say... Do you know what she... And he... They are... You seem to be having troubles finding your words, man. Why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I must say, I am shocked. She is from the Red Quarter. Much of what is done there cannot even be spoken by my tongue or across my lips. It is so unholy. The mere mention of it would defile me. Sounds like a personal problem. But him and the others he works with, they betray our people for money. And they're not even sorry. If you're so offended, then leave. Let them speak, Andrew. They've never offered guilt sacrifices in the temple. What? The priest keeps records. We check them. Tax collectors are not welcome at the temple. We would like them better if they made the proper sacrifices. This is not about me. This is about what God wants. You are forgetting the scroll of Hosea. Hmm? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, 
more than sacrifice. There are righteous men on the lookout for you, and they are weighing every word you say. Is that the threat? Please let them know this, Yusuf. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. My favorite moment in that clip is uh, Peter saying, that sounds like more of a personal problem. I love the amount of snark that they give Peter in this series. So Jesus here is sharing his mission statement. He's given his example of why is he here? He's saying, I have not come to call the righteous. I have come to call sinners. In fact, in the text, it says, I have come to call sinners to repentance. I'm not here for the perfect people. I'm here for the people that know they, they are not perfect and need help. Why is he hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes? Why is he with them? It's not because he condones that lifestyle. It's not because he affirms them living in that sin in the future. It's because he's calling sinners to a different life. He's calling them to a different way of living and to repent from their sin, to turn from it and turn to God. He's not there to help them continue in that. And when they do turn from their sin, when they do repent, he welcomes them with open arms, unlike the Pharisees. Repentance can sound like kind of a Christian-y word. It can sound like a very harsh word, like it's the repent is the word that the angry preacher yells when he's trying to scare people not to sin. And yet that is not at all what repentance is about. Repentance is simply a turning from the wrong way of doing things to the right way of doing things. Turning from the sin in my life and the wrong that I know God doesn't allow or approve of to turn to live in, in God's way. And repentance brings restoration. Repentance brings restoration. Think about it. You've probably at some point had a friend or a loved one who did something to hurt you, did something that, that, was, that they should not have done. And then at some point they came back to you and they apologized and said, I'm sorry. I'm never going to do that again. They repented of what they did and they turned away from it. And, and most likely what happened after that was your relationship was even better than it was before because trust was built in that repentance when they recognized they did wrong and they came and they acknowledged it with you. Repentance brings restoration. And so Christmas is not just about gifts and the cross is not just about judgment. But Christmas and the cross are really about repentance. Christmas and the cross are really about repentance when you see them through the right lens. Why did Jesus come? It wasn't just so that we could have cool decorations and gifts and lots of wonderful food and parties with friends and great nativity sets. I certainly hope that in your nativity sets, you're putting the wise men a little ways away because they weren't there at that time. They were two years off just to be biblically accurate. But as great as those nativity sets are, as great as those decorations are, that's not why Jesus came. He came to invite sinners to repent. And so Christmas and the cross are really about repentance. The opportunity that we have to turn from our sin, to turn toward God and live a different way as part of his family and experience all the benefits and the joys that come along with that. I want to show you one more passage. It's in John chapter three. It's one you're probably very, very familiar with. It's in verse 16 that we'll start. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. See, the mission of Jesus, the reason he came, the reason we celebrate Christmas ultimately, is 
that he wanted to call sinful people to repentance. Yes. But what does that lead to? The reward of that ultimately is eternal life. That's the end game. That's where he's going. He came to take sinful people like you and me with messed up and broken lives. Give us the opportunity to turn away from that, to live for him and then have eternal life with God. Something, if you recall back to the beginning of this message, the psalmist said we could never pay for. We could never earn. And yet that is why Jesus came so that we could have life eternal with God living in eternity and perfection with him, something we cannot do on our own. And so Christmas and the cross lead to eternal life. Christmas and the cross lead to eternal life. This is what we see when we look at Christmas through the lens of the cross. It's not materialism. It's the Messiah. And why is he our Messiah? Because we couldn't pay for our own sin. We couldn't pay enough to God to make up for the bad things that we do. And so we need Jesus here. And Jesus came. Yes, he came on a silent night, holy night that we sort of idealize as this romanticized, wonderful, everything's calm and perfect and beautiful. And I don't think that's how it actually worked. It was probably chaotic and scary and painful and difficult. But Jesus came as the lowest of the low, died as the lowest of the low so that you and I could experience ransom, forgiveness, repentance, restoration with God. In everything else you do this Christmas season, all of the parties you have and the gifts and the fun, don't forget in your heart what Jesus did for you. The reason we celebrate is not because it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's because we have the most wonderful savior who came so that we could have spiritual life we could never earn on our own. I'm going to ask you if you would bow your heads with me. I want to pray, but before we do that, I recognize that there may be some people here or watching online right now who have never trusted in Jesus to be your savior, never asked him to, to forgive your sin so that you can have a life with him and life eternal. And today, this, this year, this month would be a great time to do that. To just pray to God and say, Lord, I know that you sent Jesus to die for me. I know that he paid the penalty for my sin, so I don't have to because I can't do it. And I believe in him and I trust in him and I want him to be my savior. I want to have a new life with you. And if you communicate that to God in your own words and mean it sincerely, you become a part of his family. That's, that's truly what we mean when we say becoming a Christian. It's becoming a part of God's family, a part of his kingdom and having a restored, redeemed life with God that'll completely change everything. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for you sending your son to this earth long ago so that we could have a relationship with you. God, we remember now your sacrifice coming in humility, coming humbly as a baby, not as a victorious warrior, not as a king, not to some wealthy family, Lord, but you came in such a humble way and experienced the worst we had to offer, the jeers, the beatings, the death on a criminal's cross. And you went through all of that to demonstrate your love for us, the depths that you went, the lengths that you went for us. And so I pray, God, that this year we would keep that in mind 
and treasure in our heart what you've done for us. May it make a difference in how we think and what we prioritize, how we live, how we speak, how we interact with our family this year, understanding the great love that you have for us and the sacrifice you made for us. And now, Lord, we turn to to celebrate that with the ordinance that you created to take the bread and to take the cup as a reminder of your body and your blood that were poured out in sacrifice for us. How fitting for us to look at Christmas through the lens of the cross and then remember what you went through on the cross. So we honor you and we thank you, Lord. And in your name we pray, amen.